Welcome to Beyond the Shelf. I'm Scott Curry with Chef's Best. We gather to talk about the trends in marketing, retail, and production in food and beverage that are shaping the industry. Joining us today is social entrepreneur Catherine Burnell. Catherine is founder and CEO of Reblend, creators of frozen smoothie pops. Reblend works with manufacturers and farmers to source, purchase, and use unnecessarily discarded and overlooked products that would otherwise go to waste because they are not so-called cosmetically standard. Prior to starting Reblend, Catherine gained experience working across the food and beverage industry for companies such as CTI Foods, McDonald's, Love Grown, Pop Chips, and most recently Cliff Bar, where she was customer manager, defining retail strategies and selling objectives for regional sales reps. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Reblend, uh, you know, how you got started, what was kind of the impetus for doing that and uh you know did you follow passion necessity what 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 brought you into the entrepreneurial world yeah a little bit of all of the above um as you had noted i had spent my entire career in the food industry and while i was you know filling a variety of roles whether it was you know, being a line chef or working in R&D and working on production lines, you know, I just kept seeing all the waste that the food industry generated. And it wasn't until I went to grad school that I really clued in on the food waste epidemic. And it astounded me that, you know, 40% of all food cultivated in the United States is not reaching a stomach I did a TED talk. I was calling farmers and manufacturers and distributors, just wanting to understand and make sense of everything that was happening. And one of the most consistent pieces of feedback that I kept getting was that one of the biggest gaps in the food manufacturing world is that most products you see on shelf don't start with a whole fruit or vegetable, as most production facilities work with concentrates, juices, processed purees and flavors. And I kept hearing that if there was a company that thought differently about the way it sourced and produced its products and could work with whole fruits and veggies, that not only ostensibly could it deliver a better product, but it also could partner with farmers and manufacturers and distributors to offload this unnecessarily discarded produce to also have a hand at fighting food waste. And at the same time, I was a busy grad student. I was not eating a whole lot of fruits and vegetables. I wanted to eat more fruits and vegetables. And I was making smoothies in the morning and it just quickly got out of hand. All of a sudden, this like great idea became a 30 minute process. I'm like cleaning my fruits and veggies, chopping my fruits and veggies, pulling out my goji and my chia, measuring my goji and my chia, then you're blending, then you're cleaning. And at the end of it, your kitchen's a war zone. And no longer was this really an efficient way to get my fruits and veggies in. And I had this idea to take the smoothie, strip out all of the extra milk and ice and excess fruit to take just the nuts and bolts of what I was trying to get a boost of pack it into a pop that I could grab from my freezer and head to class with. And so I just started to make them for myself. And my friends saw me eating them. And soon I started to get requests to make them some. 
And they're like, we'll pay you. And I was like, sure, I'll take the cash. And before I knew it, I was getting inbounds from people I didn't even know asking if I was the smoothie woman and if they could get some too. And really that was when the light bulb went off. It became abundantly clear that there was a massive audience of consumers looking for more seamless ways to get whole fruits and veggies back into their diet. And there was a huge gap in the food manufacturing world and an opportunity for there to be a brand that put a stake in the ground for thinking differently about the way it sourced and produced its products. And so it kind of, you know, circling back to your question, it was a moment of necessity and also an opportunity to really capitalize on my passions uh, to bring both of these two together. And so that was really the journey to start Reblend, kind of an exciting update. You know, we are venturing into our next chapter, which is uh, rebranding as Reharvest Provisions, which is going to be launching very shortly in January. And the goal of Reharvest Provisions is to really capture all of the work that has been done and the vision for the future of being a company that stands for craveable products that are consciously made and are seriously convenient. Awesome. Well, congrats on that rebrand. It, it, it's funny when you said it, I said, well, that makes sense to me. Uh, just, you know, a little more, a little more uh, larger umbrella to fit under as a, as a brand, Exactly. Uh, a little more global in its thinking. So I will do my best for the remainder of our chat to refer to it as reharvest provisions. Uh, uh, awesome story. You know, it, I, I like to tell my, my daughter that is, she's almost 13 and I'll tell you, my, my, I, pre, I project right now that she will be an entrepreneur somewhere. She's just kind of wired that way. And she says, well, how do I, how do I know what company to start? Cause you don't want to, she comes up with ideas, you know, but yeah. you don't want to shoot them down. I say, you know what? You, you need to look for either convenience or any problem or complaint people have in the world is an opportunity to, to start a business. And, you know, you had your own, right? Which was in part the, the just the challenge and the messiness and the cleanup of every day needing to create a smoothie. And, you know, clearly you had a lot of friends that, whether they knew it or not, wanted a smoothie or more accurately, they wanted fruits and vegetables as a, as a snack and particularly in the morning and just didn't have, didn't have the heart, didn't have the time to, to go through the process every morning. And, and you're filling that, that kind of gap in the, in the market and in the system. But the gap that you're really filling here, right, is, is this idea of upcycling. So uh, I'd like to talk, talk more about that. If, if you look at, you know, on the one hand, we have the most remarkable distribution system, obviously, ever created for moving food around the world. Um, it, 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 you know, all of global and, and regional logistics is a is a, a human marvel, but in particular, food because it's nature of expiring uh, just has always stuck out to me. The fact that. I could I could within five minutes walk down the street right now and come back with an apple and pay like fifty cents is yeah. insane. You know where that that apple could get back to me here in my room and costing me fifty cents and 
you know, uh, uh, five minutes of walking is, is just remarkable, not to mention all the packaged goods and everything as well. So having said that, it's also just, you know, it, it's, it's one of the more, uh, it's, it's one of the bigger failures, right, as well, because food being the most necessary thing in the world, along with water, uh, to stop and pause and think for a moment that so much of it does not go into mouths when it, it could, right? It's just a, a, a big glitch in, in market inefficiency. Uh, you know, glitches in market inefficiencies are usually solved by money. Yet it, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that our, I'm not sure if it's our desire or what we've been told about food, but the need for it to look a certain way, the vanity of food, if you will, is is actually where where it lies, right? You are lying through your teeth if you don't look at those apples and pick the one that you think is for some reason looks better, which for some reason you think is more nutritious, right? We all do it. Uh, Yet to to stick with the apple uh, example, a blemished apple is an apple, (laughs) you know? Um, So, so I just want to take a little bit of time and talk more about that. Um, And feel free to, to shock us with any stats that might exist about the amount of food that's wasted. And, you know, I'm not just talking about just a little stem at a restaurant that just gets chopped off. I mean, I'm sure that adds up, but that's micro stuff, but this is happening at an industrial scale, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the statistics that are present are terrifying enough. What I think really compounds a lot of what I get anxious and you know disturbed by is that we're not even capturing you know the whole picture as for a lot of players they're not even tracking you know a lot of farmers don't capture the amount of produce that they are not able to sell and who, who tracks your trash right i, I mean exactly. i'm not tracking my trash going out of my house Correctly. The, you know, it's not necessarily even being reported up to a lot of the aggregates that are putting together statistics. And I think there are two really troublesome kind of implications of all of our waste practices. One is that we do, I think, you know, the supply chain struggles and, you know, these past two years hopefully have shed some light on the idea of resource constraints, something that I think most Americans have never really in recent times interacted with and had to face. And that's only going to get worse as global warming continues to ravage all of the agricultural systems and regions, you will continue to see more and more resource shortages And unless we put a stopgap in the current waste cycles, the need to produce more and more on existing land is going to continue to put more pressure on our ability to cultivate and deliver delicious fruits and veggies. And what goes even a step further and where, you know, my heart really focuses in on is the reality that already we have massive issues with food insecurity in this country. We have huge inequity problems with getting fruits and veggies into the mouths and stomachs of 
people all across the country. And when you flash forward to the periods where food shortages will kick in, it will be the communities that already struggle to get fruits and vegetables that will no longer be able to access said apple that you picked up down the street as it will probably incur a price hike of 50 cents to a dollar. And while there will always be a portion of society that can withstand an extra dollar per apple, the mass majority will not. And that is also what I see in the the future if we don't get a better handle on making more use of what we currently have. And so, you know, I think that for me, when I take a step back, has really motivated a lot of my passion of connecting with a lot of the players in the food industry. Now, you know, it's been really exciting. We now get inbounds every week from players that are learning about who we are and what we're doing and are reaching out because all of a sudden they've clued into the opportunity to reassess what's been classified as waste. And in part, they're excited because no one wants to feel like a waster. And in other respects, there's an economic incentive because they're able to, instead of having to pay six figures a year to offload this waste, all of a sudden have an income stream for something that they had never considered to be a valid offering. Gosh, I just have this, this terrifying vision of just train the, the, the two trains that you highlighted. They're just, I don't know, they're on, they're on a track and going to smash into each other and uh, wake us up. But it's interesting what you say about that the idea of logistics uh, shortages and how it's, it's really, it's educating Americans because I might, I might suggest that the timeline was, you know, for years, we, well, forever, we've never, uh, whether frankly manufactured domestically or international, I don't think anyone ever thought about where this stuff came from, you know, barring a, a blip yeah. in the made, made, made in America movement over the last several decades, you never really thought about it. Uh, and then, you know, of course we've swung to on demand, right? <laughs> it's yeah. been 48 hours and I just bought this on my phone. How could it possibly not be here? Uh, is, is, I can't say it's unrealistic because it happens, but it's wild to, to think about that. Um, it's right up there with, you know, if you were placed into a coma in 1980 and popped out now that you'd go, wait a minute, 48 hours. But now what we're learning is, no, this stuff has to travel somewhere. And, um, you know, if you've ever, you know, you're up in San Francisco, we're down here in Southern California. And I'll tell you, anyone that's, that's planning on going to Disneyland or anything like that, go ahead, hit the tourist spots in California, have, have fun. Take a quick drive over to, to the Port of Long Beach and Port of Los Angeles. It's one of the wonders of the world and it makes you realize how much stuff has to come in through here. And we're realizing, you know, 80 ships sitting off the dock, you can actually see them from San Diego some days now, which has never happened. Just how complex, like delicate it is. Yeah. And uh, you have you have that, and then you have, you know, we can just talk about California alone. You know, California is the sole producer, meaning you know, ninety nine percent or more of almonds, artichokes, you know, certain peaches, plums, garlic, you know, pistachios. I think it's raisins as well. And overall, I think it's half of fruits and vegetables. 
And if you don't think that the the water crisis uh, is real in California, then then you know you need to just keep reading up. I'm sure it's politically charged, but it, it, do you imagine a world where we as consumers might need to accept that? the artichokes uh, or the tomatoes or, you know, the amount of lettuce that's grown in California that's, that's feeding people in New England and, and Florida and elsewhere that we're going to have to accept that, uh, you know, all the nutritional value is there, even though there might, you know, be a so-called blemish, you know, we're not talking rotten here. We're talking just an apple that, it, that just isn't that perfect, perfect global orbital shape. Do you envision that we're going to have to adjust as a society uh, as these these kind of trains are colliding? Absolutely. I think you would be remiss not to acknowledge the inevitable reality that we have to shift. And I think a huge part of my philosophy is to iterate that Shifting how we source does not mean we have to shift necessarily our standards on quality. And I think that's been a really important message kind of at the backbone of how I've thought about our products and our experience, which is, you know, I don't want anyone to ever feel like a martyr to a cause by supporting and investing in a brand that is tackling food waste, because I just don't think that that's the whole story. Um, it requires, you know, a brand to think differently and maybe to adjust a host of their practices, but the output isn't a lesser quality offering. And I think it goes back to your earlier point of when someone's going to the grocery store, yeah, there might be a little bit of a bruise on your apple. Um, but when you get past that, the product is in the apple is actually still really delicious. And the same thing holds true with our products where, yeah, some of the apples we source are, you know, oddly shaped or they might be, you know, several ounces smaller than what is generally considered to be commercial or our zucchini comes in, you know, via the strips that come as an upcycled byproduct of a vegetable processor. But all of the inputs ladder up to a really delicious product. And so I think consumers just need to shift their mentality a little bit. But I also think the onus is on brands and, you know, uh, retailers and the like to continue to deliver still at the end of the day, a product that doesn't make people feel like they're shortchanging their standards for quality as a central concept. Yeah. Like most big problems. And, and this is a big one that's built on, you know, decades of habits. Uh, it takes an, an institutional change uh, with all respect to what you're doing. You won't solve it. Right. <laughs> Reharv right. Reharvest provisions won't solve a, a multi-decade, multi, I don't know, trillion dollar, and uh, kind of un, in, in infinite ethical problem. But we're uh, rolling up well. our sleeves and we're giving yeah. it our best shot. Hey, it takes leaders like you. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, I want to talk just uh, a little bit about the path that you took uh, from making products for friends, create a company, monetizing it, 
And, uh, you know, I think I believe I read on the way you, you, you were marketing at Farmer's Market. Uh, that, yeah. that was kind of your, your first retail beyond maybe your, your friends. I want to talk about that last jump because it seems like maybe the toughest jump to make from, yes. I mean, a hustle, right? I'm sure you were hustling. I, I can only imagine getting up in the morning and setting up and everything. Uh, we all go to farmer's markets. We see so many passionate folks at, at that stage. What advice would you have for them? Yeah. I mean, I remember when I began, and it's true for a lot of food manufacturers, the biggest hump is that no co-packer wants to work with you. And so when I started, I was walking dogs to cover rent. And I had found a soup factory that let me come in during off hours. So from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., I was um, coming in and I bought my own small scale equipment and I was hand making all the product. Then during the day, I was hitting mom and pop shops on the weekends and on you know certain weekdays, I'd be hitting the farmer's market and you know, continuing to get the product in front of people and to continue learning what worked, what didn't work, what people loved. And I took a very grassroots approach to scaling. And I think there's a lot of ways you can start a business. I wouldn't have done it any differently. In part, I have such a deep and intimate understanding of this brand and the experience that my consumers have and the recipes and the formulations and the level of granularity that I have exposure to with every facet of the business really came from building it from the ground up. Um, In terms of monetizing and advice, I mean, I think the best way to start is simply that, to just start. And, you know, I think you can sometimes overthink what you're doing and you can get product in front of consumers. They'll let you know what works and what doesn't. You know, when someone's spending money for something, they generally are inclined to have opinions and they're generally inclined to share them with you. And so I think my best advice is to put yourself in a position It'll be very uncomfortable, but to put yourself in a position, whether it be a farmer's market, whether it be a pop-up at a local festival or, you know, a holiday market. I mean, there are so many different venues that you can find wherein you can sample your product. You might be able to sell your product, but really the more exposure you can get with customers, the quicker you're going to learn what they like and what they don't like. And when you hit the head on the nail of solving a problem that they have, delighting them with an experience that they want to spend money to repeat, you can scale that. And I think the second piece is none of this is easy. None of this is glamorous. And making sure you have a really clear why for what you are doing is a really important piece to have in place as you begin. Is there a lot of, I don't know, maybe easier or more glamorous ways? If you're just in it for the money, there's a lot of ways to make money. Um, But I think it needs to go a step further and for there to be something that compels you to get up and roll up your sleeves and to kind of keep, keep chugging along. Because there's a lot of things that, you know, 
come your way as you start anything. Or in your case, not get up, but stay up. Uh, yeah. And, and, and experience <laughs> exactly. the glamour of, of 2 a.m. by yourself in a, a food facility. Um, gosh, I, I just uh, I love see, love hearing success after that level of, of, of hard work. Um, so the product itself, let's talk about it a little bit. They're, they're, they're these really convenient pops. They're a little over, I think, an ounce and a half. You have is it five flavors right now. Correct. Um, yes. You have uh, Frise All Day, which cherry, strawberry, raspberry beet, uh, and rose water. You've got one that is more tropical. You've got your super greens one, very berry. You've got a raspberry lemonade. That sounds really good uh, as well. And, and nutritional value packed in there, right? I think for about 30 calories, you're, you're, you're getting, what are you getting? Literally just fruits, veggies, and superfoods. Um, you know, these products were made to satiate my own needs and my own standards in many respects. And I knew from day one, I wasn't going to create a product that I myself wasn't excited to eat. And if it wasn't something that I wanted to put in my body, there's no way that I'm going to put it into something that I'm sharing with the rest of the world. And it was very clear that we were not going to take shortcuts with our ingredients, that it was really important that whole fruits and veggies were going to be blended and that we weren't just going to mix up concentrates and juices and that, yeah, I was going to have to get really creative with the way that we worked through the color of the product. So, you know, I use blue spirulina in our super greens and I use beet in our frosé and have been really looking to kind of natural ingredients like hibiscus flour and a raspberry lemonade is ways to avoid having to use food dyes and preservatives. And we'll tell you it's not the norm in the industry. The number of times I get told that there's a lot of easier tools to use, um, you know, makes me sad in some respects that that is the norm, but it also encourages me because I, I'm really proud of the ingredients that are in our pops and get really excited about you know people having the opportunity to you know just squeeze what I deem to be just really clean nutrient dense ingredients into their day. It's what we all want. And like I said, you you turn your your and I do it most mornings, my kitchen to a war zone, uh, as I'm trying to trying to <laughs> You know, I, I take pride as a dad in, in knowing if nothing else, uh, and Lord knows I have my, my failures along the way during the day, that I'm sending my kids off uh, with some nutrients in them. I, I've, uh, I don't know, aim for probably about 300, some sort of smoothies a day, but there's certainly a gap there that uh, whether convenience bringing elsewhere to the sports fields or you know, some mornings I just don't really feel like firing up the blender. Uh, and I know I'm just sending my kids off with a snack that uh, can't compare to something like Reharvest Provisions is, is offering. Um, you're, you are part of the Kroger Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that, how you got involved. Uh, you know, speak about their objectives a little bit and what yeah. their experience was like. You know, I think Kroger, I mean, I can't speak 
more highly about the experience partnering with them. They really came to the table with every resource and positive intent of supporting a different type of cohort of brands that scale differently, are looking to tackle different challenges within the food system. As you know, Kroger, I think, recognizes that the future of food is going to live with brands like the cohort members of the program and that the growing level of consciousness that is present with Gen Z and millennials is going to require them to support you know, brands like us as we look to, to change the landscape of food manufacturing. And they, as a partner, um, you know, offered us a lot of great touch points to work with one another and to support each other in the program. They were, you know, able to offer us, you know, financial resources to continue targeting some of the, the key challenges that all of the companies we had individually, you know, identified as areas of growth. And really just above and beyond, you know, I can't speak enough about Kroger's commitment to really digging in deep to change the food supply chain. And I think there's a lot of, you know, companies or retailers that might pay lip service to change. But what really excited me was the way that Kroger recognized that there are a lot of players out there that are looking to make a change. And what they wanted to do was to empower those companies, us um, within the program to do what we're focused on doing and to offer us the resources we need to continue scaling the impact that we're having. And so I haven't seen another retailer out there lean into the fight against food waste the way that Kroger has. And um, it was, you know, a really incredible experience to work with them and to also work with the other cohort members. Um, we had several other companies that are taking fascinating approaches to identifying gaps and overlooked sources of waste that are accruing within our supply chain and to turn them into really delicious, incredible products and amazing experiences for their customers. That's awesome. Good for them. It's it's going to take the power of of some of the ones that, you know, they have the levers, they have the the, the power, if you will, they have the capital, uh, in order to to turn the ship into a, a more sustainable direction. It, which, as we talked about earlier, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, you know, it may become more of a necessity driven uh, situation, and, and market forces may drive. But it's wonderful to hear that they're supporting leaders that. Uh, you know, are not only going to be successful, but you're paving the path and dare I say, learning some lessons along the way as well that are going to be valuable uh, to those that, that will, you know, try that, that path that you're laying down. Uh, let's talk about where folks can find uh, Reharvest provisions. You can order online, right, at reharvest.co. Yes. Um, so you can, you can order, said so there's five different flavors there. You can order them, um, you don't have to wait for a ship to arrive on shore, I assume. So no. we can maybe make a little promise that, that it'll arrive. Um, where else can folks find uh, these you know, amazing smoothie pops? Yeah, so you can find us on Amazon and Thrive 
and Fresh Direct. And um, you know, soon we'll be launching into brick and mortar. But for right now, um, between Amazon and Thrive and um, you know our website, you should be able to get your hands on some of our pops. Uh, as I've noted, we're reblend right now, reharvest uh, provisions will be coming to life shortly. And so in the interim, um, you know, it's still the same great product. And I know that we've heard from quite a few people that they have already purchased them as stocking stuffers. And oh, yeah. um, especially during the season when we are all indulging in our favorite treats, having something on hand, a small win that you can kind of still squeeze into your day goes a really long way. And so love hearing from people that they're keeping their reblends stocked in the freezer during the holidays to kind of balance out some of the other decisions that they are making. Awesome. And you can subscribe and save directly from your website as well, which uh, is, is very, very sensible uh, in my, my opinion. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much for joining Catherine. Uh, you know, we have so many different entrepreneurs on here. Uh, I wish them all luck. I mean it when I say that. I really wish you luck. <laughs> um, you know, there, so many folks are doing incredible, fascinating things. You're among them. Uh, and we can only hope that your success breeds additional success in this area. Uh, said, I think there's a, we have at this point, with all this abundance that we have in the world, all the convenience uh, that we're, we're fortunate to have and, and from so many people that have done amazing things over the decades, but we're perhaps reaching a, a moral imperative, uh, bringing awareness to, to food insecurity and is said probably, probably becoming uh, something that either we or perhaps certainly I would say our children have to get used to because uh, with the, the shifts in climate, wherever you stand on, your thoughts on that, uh, you speak to a farmer, it's real and the ability to predict how many zucchinis are going to be grown in every given year is going to be a challenge. And uh, if you have to purchase a zucchini that is got a little blemish on it, that uh, that might be the norm. Uh, but if you're looking for convenience to be able to contribute to that cause in a positive way and some some positive health benefits along the way, then reblend soon to be reharvest congrats on rebranding during the holidays i'm sure that's made it less stressful for you um, <laughs> is, is, is one way to go <laughs> uh, awesome well thank you so much for your time thank you for including me uh, on the podcast and um appreciate appreciate the opportunity it's been our pleasure thanks thanks again Catherine. Thank you for joining us on Beyond the Shelf, presented by Chef's Best. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy listening to episodes.